Good morning again, everyone. Happy Easter. It's great to be here with you. Glad to see every one of you. Um, We are going through, or actually finishing up, a sermon series on the scandal of the cross appropriately with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And this is the risen King. This is our gospel reading, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them that He had said these things to her. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paula Cooper was determined to make good on her second chance. She wanted to become the profile of redemption. A death row inmate at age 16, she had won reprieve and was trying to rebuild her life. And she might have achieved her happy ending, if not for the guilt and the shame that plagued her and haunted her, the past that she couldn't escape. You see, 30 years ago, Paula had murdered an elderly Bible teacher, and she pleaded guilty. And after the advocacy, partly on behalf of, uh, of her early release by the teacher's grandson, she was granted an early release and given a reprieve from death row. In 2013, she was released after serving 27 years in prison. Now a middle-aged woman, she had to learn to write a check. She had to learn how to use a cell phone. She had to learn to manage her finances. 
But she found a good job and became very respected by her coworkers. She showed up every day. She fell in love and planned to marry. But she also knew in the back of her mind that some people would never be able to forgive her for what she had done because she couldn't forgive herself. She writes to her fiancé in one of a series of goodbyes that she wrote to loved ones, I have taken a life and I've never felt worthy. But she goes on, I don't want people crying and having lots of regrets, feeling that they could have done more. There was nothing anybody could do. So she sat down near a tree, pointed a handgun at her head, and pulled the trigger. Her past dictated her future. Often our past dictates our future. What has been will be. And that's exactly where Mary found herself. That's exactly where the disciples were. What has been will be. Why is Mary at the tomb? We're not entirely sure. Some of the other gospel writers say that they brought spices to anoint the body, but if there's this big stone in front of the tomb, how does she expect to accomplish that? Whatever her reason in going, it certainly wasn't to, because she expected an empty tomb, because she expected to find a risen Savior. And we can sympathize with her because the resurrection is an astounding, extraordinary, profound idea. And it's difficult to believe. And for some of you, doubt in this particular area is the reason that you're hesitant to become a Christian. Doubt in this area may be the reason that you are moving or have moved away from Christianity. And every Christian I know, including myself, lives inconsistently with the proclamation of the resurrection. So we understand your doubt because we share it from time to time. You see, we confess it intellectually, but our past, as it did for Paula Cooper, haunts us and gnaws at us. And we say He is risen, but it doesn't change anything. We believe it intellectually, but we allow the sadness and the difficulties in our world to drive us into a place of despair and confusion and anger, or maybe even just numbness. And it's not just the sadness and the difficulties of this world that supplant the resurrection But for those of you who are tasting success, those of you who have gotten uh, a bit of savoring of what is called affluence in this world, we allow these things to hold our hearts, to hold our minds, to hold our dreams. And these things tell us, they whisper to us, they speak to us, that we can have control, we can have security in a broken and unpredictable world. And so the significance of the resurrection diminishes. It fades. It ceases to be remarkable, astounding, foundational. For whatever reason Mary is there, we can't blame her for her despondency and her confusion. She goes and finds that the tomb is empty, but her explanation is not initially resurrection. She thinks the body has been taken, perhaps stolen, And you can imagine her thinking, they have killed our Lord, our friend, and now they are desecrating His grave. What an insult. 
So her coming to the tomb isn't a hallelujah call and response moment. She's dejected and confused and offended. And she goes to tell Peter and John they've taken the Lord. And Peter and John run and go and confirm it. And they basically say, yep, I guess you're right. And then they go right back to doing whatever it was they were doing before. That's it. They're not curious. They don't set out to find the body. They aren't expecting resurrection either. They're still living in a Good Friday world. What has been will be. But Mary returns. And here's where things get interesting, or depending on your perspective, a little strange. Because when she goes back, there are two angels where Jesus' body should have been. And they ask her, why are you weeping? It's a couple of days after the crucifixion, and she is still visibly distraught, weeping, overcome with grief. And her answer is, they have taken him away. We don't know who they is in her mind. And she turns around, and she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him. She mistakes him for the gardener. Now, there's another episode in the Gospels where Jesus intentionally conceals his identity from some of his followers on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him when he walks up and starts talking with them. But John doesn't indicate here that this is a supernatural concealment. What's going on is that Mary is processing her grief, her situation through the lens of crucifixion through the lens of fear and loss and the finality of death. What has been will be. Jesus is dead. Her hopes are dashed. Her sorrow will go on. Now, let's linger here for just a moment because it's very interesting how, he, how she confuses Jesus with a gardener. It's profound, perhaps prophetic, that she thinks he's the gardener. If we had read the gospel from the very beginning in chapter 1, John opens his gospel with this stunning paragraph, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say that through Him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Light and dark the stars, the cosmos, the earth, land, and sea, and finally mankind, all were created. And where is mankind created? In a garden. In a garden. And it's there that the beauty of God's creation begins to be spoiled and disfigured. Humanity turns away from God and rejects His gracious care. And despoils the creation to the point that what is needed is nothing less than new creation, a new start, a new garden. John is telling us here that Jesus is not a gardener, but He's the gardener. He is the gardener of the new creation. His resurrection is nothing less than a reboot of creation itself. So, in one sense, we have this case of mistaken identity. Mary doesn't recognize Him, but an incredible irony, Mary identifies Jesus with incredible precision. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians 
goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. In other words, there are cosmic consequences to the resurrection. And as Tolkien so beautifully says in Return of the King, a great shadow has departed, and everything sad is going to come untrue. What has been does not have to be for Mary, for the disciples, for you, for me. There are cosmic consequences, but there's also personal. Notice how Jesus addresses Mary. In the midst of her great trauma and grief, she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus says to her, Mary. Mary. Profound intimacy. Creation's gardener is talking to her and knows her name and knows her story. We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene. We know that she plays a key role in the resurrection narratives. She becomes essentially the first preacher of the good news of the resurrection. And it's her, a woman, rather than the male disciples, who is entrusted with the announcement of Jesus rising. St. Augustine calls her an apostle to the apostles. But there's more to her story, and it's not quite so prestigious. We are told in Matthew's gospel that she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus met her in a moment of spiritual bondage and oppression, of social exclusion and profound alienation, and Jesus heals her. He casts out the demons. He rescues her. She was spiritually oppressed, no hope, no thought that tomorrow would be any different, no way out, and Jesus sets her free. She didn't experience Jesus' resurrection in some abstract or vague way, but in the here and now, it was real for her story. For Mary Magdalene, Jesus was much more than a friend, but He represented life and salvation and redemption and hope and her future. It was all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He was the reason that her past didn't dictate her future, and now He was gone. She's one of the last, we're told, to leave the cross at the crucifixion. She lingers and waits. She's the first to go to the tomb. She goes back after telling the disciples, and they don't do anything. She goes back, and she lingers, hoping against hope. When we encounter Jesus' resurrection, it's a chance for us to rethink our own stories. Is there a way that things can be truly and lastingly different? Jesus called Mary's name, and her story would never be the same. What has been does not have to be any longer. There was another Mary who had a rough growing up. Her name was Mary Ann, and she was born with a cleft palate and a disfigured face and lopsided feet, and so she walked funny. And naturally, she was the target of all sorts of childhood cruelty that you can imagine. They would sneer at her, did you cut your lip? Why do you walk funny like a duck? 
Mary Ann lived in a dark world of social exclusion and of alienation. There's no reason for her to believe that tomorrow would be any different than today. But one year she got a new teacher, and her name was Miss Leonard. And Miss Leonard was short and round and a little dowdy, but she shined with kindness. And in those days, teachers were required to administer sort of a homespun hearing test, and they would call the students up to their desk one by one and ask them to cover one ear while they whispered softly to see if that other ear worked properly. And Marianne dreaded this test because not only was she, did she have a disfigured face and she walked funny, cleft palate, but she was also deaf in one ear. And so this test would be yet another opportunity for people to notice her deficiencies. And on the day of the test, when it came time for Mary's name, Mary, Marianne waddled up and shuffled forward, and she covered up her bad ear first. And as Miss Leonard leaned in close, Marianne heard words that would change her life forever. Because for Marianne's hearing test, Miss Leonard bent over and whispered, I wish that you were my little girl, Marianne. And through those words, and in the midst of personal darkness, Marianne heard the voice of love. She heard the voice of grace. And she attributed it to the voice of Jesus speaking through this middle-aged teacher, and it changed her life. She heard her name from someone who loved her. Marianne grew up to become a teacher herself, and now she shines with kindness and with grace. And it started when Marianne heard Jesus call her name through the voice of this teacher. John 20 gives us an Easter that fits us. It's an Easter that we can take home with us. Because you see, if Easter requires hallelujahs and call and response exuberance, then who could maintain that? Who can keep up that sort of elation over the resurrection? Most of us here are probably not sure that we can outrun our past that those dark shadows keep haunting us and chasing us. We do believe that our past dictates our future, that what has been will be. But Jesus, the crucified, the risen one, knows your name. He knows your name. And just as surely as He knew Mary Magdalene's name and burst Easter into her heart, the moment He called her name to her, no matter how deep the darkness is in your life, listen, listen for that voice calling your name. The resurrection is the starting point of a new life where what has been does not have to be anymore. You see, the resurrection is a down payment on a new creation. It's the first installment of a world set right. And we are called to act in word and deed as if it's true. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that your past and your sin and your failures don't dictate your future. Resurrection dictates your future. That we as a church can act as if Jesus is alive and lean into the places that are broken and dark 
that seems so bound to the way things are and say, no, things don't have to be that way any longer because Jesus lives and He has been resurrected. And it means, too, that each of us are invited to be that voice of love, that voice of grace, like that teacher, to speak others' names with kindness and with love and with forgiveness and with new life. You see, friends, Jesus has set in motion a new creation, and He is cultivating it, and His new life is yours. He is risen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that as we close this service that resurrection would not any longer be abstract or a vague hope, but that we would believe it in our hearts and our minds and our guts, that it would change the way that we live. Wherever we're coming from this morning, whether we have significant doubts that this actually took place as it is recorded, whether we have doubts that are causing us to wander away from the church or whether we have doubts that take form and take shape in just us living in ways that doesn't look as if we believe the resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would step in, give us new life, give us new creation. Would you, as the cosmic gardener, cultivate a life of gladness in our lives as individuals and as a church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.